was a wee young lad. Well, sort of wee. It was probably like uh, seventh or eighth grade. I, uh, I, I realized that my grandmother's birthday was coming up. And um, this is my mom's mom. And she was super religious. They lived, in fact, across the street from a church. Uh, and I didn't really care for my grandmother that much growing up because she wasn't so kind to me. She came from the old school of children need to be seen and not heard. But uh, every now and then I would reach out, <laughs> try to try to bridge the gap. And so I, I decided to speak her language and get her something of religious significance for her birthday. And, of course, I was a kid and had no money. So when I saw an ad for a Mormon book called The Power of Living, I saw this book being advertised everywhere. It was free. You, you call the toll-free number, even the call is free. And you get this free book uh, from the Mormons. And, of course, in my itty-bitty kid mind, I didn't realize that uh, all Christian religions aren't born equal. So my grandmother was not a Mormon. She was not uh, thrilled. Yet and still, I was thrilled because, unbeknownst to her, uh, I actually uh, leafed through the book before I sent it to her. Um, and she was nice enough about it, you know, pretending to be thankful and all of that, but really sort of gritting her teeth that this was not the right religion, but okay. I, uh, I leafed through the book, and in it was a prayer of some sort. Uh, like an incantation to allow Jesus into your life. And I read this prayer out loud to myself in the living room. I was doing laundry in the basement, and I was alone in the apartment. My parents were divorced. My mom and sister were off doing something. I don't know what. But I was at home. I was doing laundry. And I read this prayer, and I felt stupid. And I read it again, and I felt even dumber. It's like, who, who am I talking to? Some invisible person? This is silly. Um, I mean, at this point, I'd figured out that religion was crap and Jesus wasn't real and all of that. So I felt really stupid giving my life over to this thing I couldn't possibly believe in and all of that. I read it. I read it to myself. I read it a good number of times before I finally actually read it for real. Like, I gave in to the words. I caved. I meant it. I read these words. I gave myself to Jesus. And I was honest and open and meant it. And then I put the book down. Uh, I went to check on the laundry. And um, so it's an apartment building. You have to go out of our apartment and right in the little hallway there is a door across from our door, and that goes into the basement. And it was in that little hallway going into the basement that I all of a sudden doubled over with a cleansing joy that emanated from my stomach or thereabouts and spread throughout my entire body. And it was as if I knew that all of my sins had been completely wiped away. Whatever sins you could have <laughs> as a middle school kid from like kick fights or whatever, uh, from or maybe even past lives. I mean, it felt that powerful. I have no belief or care for past lives, but, um, but it was that powerful. It was as if, yeah, whatever sins you could possibly have accrued throughout all of your existence, uh, the slate was clean. 
wiped away. And this this joy feeling, I mean, it roiled out from the belly to everywhere. It was like a in waves of woof, of absolution. And I can't even describe to you what that feels like. I mean, it is uh the love, the love that you feel, the the absolute freedom in it is incredible. And um I you know, told my family about this uh, and I was um a happy, smiling, bubbly kid for a while for like a few weeks. The effects of this lasted and then eventually uh puberty kicked in and um I had the same old crappy teenage problems everyone has and and it went away and good old me came back to the foreground. <laughs> right? And then later in life, I came to the realization that it wasn't Jesus. It was um, anything. It was the act of giving up. I could have given up to a chair. So the act of, of giving up is an act of complete open honesty. I mean, really giving up and going, ugh. I, I release myself. Like, I just, I I don't know what's going on. It's easier to do to give over to someone or something, right? Because then you've got an object in mind that you're giving to. But the act of giving up is the power. Um, and in fact, the act of giving to is a mistake because then you associate the object that you gave over to as the origin of the cleansing or the good feeling, the joy, the absolution. And that's certainly one way to handle it and live uh, as if there isn't power outside of you, a second person experience of power, as it were, um, and not live it in the first person. Um, this is what, what we do generally. Um, but okay. Uh, let's put a hold on that and go to a parallel track. Um, I've been reading a book by a woman I met named Tanya Lerman, who is an anthropologist. Uh, she sent me her book, which was kind. And eventually I will interview her <laughs> for either this show or the experience that I'm doing uh, on unknowncountry.com. Who knows? But uh, the book is called When God Speaks. And it is her as an anthropologist embedding herself in evangelical culture, to figure out uh, how it is that sane people who function in the world and seem to be rational in other ways um, believe that God literally speaks to them. And she shows how they develop this ability to listen and, and how it happens and all of that. And in fact, studies show that people who believe in a higher power and pray live longer, happier lives, right? Maybe you've heard of such studies which illustrate this, and it probably bothers atheists who are like miserable in dealing with daily reality. Like, can you imagine being an atheist? I mean, maybe you're an atheist, and then you hear that there's a study that says that if you just believe and pray, you'll live longer and happier. Um, but what Tanya shows is that actually, deeper than prayer, um, having imaginary friends in talking to teddy bears and stuff like that as a kid makes you more likely to be a stable adult than those who don't. Uh, so you put those two things together, right? Higher beings aren't the catalyst for feeling happy. Having open, honest, and healthy, non-judgmental relationship is. 
Imaginary friends and God friends are for, as I say, brain people, which is our society stuck in its head as, as we are, trying to reduce everything to logical or illogical, which means taking the translogical and collapsing that into the illogical. And if you want to know what that bibbidi-bobbidi-boo of words means, feel free to come on over to OurUndoing.com and join the discussion. But okay, for now, let's just say that brain people, which is Western mind, which is, you know, America, Europe, and all of the indoctrinated (laughs) societies uh, of that mind, we have imaginary friends and God friends, guides and guardian angels and that sort of thing. Because we're seeking heart connection. Heart people, which are roughly people uh, from native cultures, from nature cultures, indigenous people, First Nations people, um, and also those who have broken up the brain self to reveal the heart self, regardless of culture. Heart people don't have imaginary friends because they are immersed in the moment through interconnecting with all of life that they treat as co-pilots. Not Jesus. And they don't grow out of it into a banal world of rationalizations and idealisms. Right? But this is what we do. We take that God and we put it on a pedestal outside of ourselves. We take those right ways of of existing in the world, of being, and we say those are ideals, things to strive for but never actually be. Oh, you're just just an idealist, a starry-eyed idealist if you think peace can happen. If you think animals and minerals have a voice in this world. Think about what to be sane is in our society. To be sane is to be just the right balance of psychopath. Like a psychopath (laughs) uh, objectifies everything, right? So it sees everything as an object in its way or an ally. You're an object to a psychopath. But we treat, on our sanest day, through the brain, we treat all of life as an object, as a thing that we observe. There's the separation between the observer and the observed. And if you don't look suspiciously just like the observer, just like you, uh, then you're treated as an object. You're a thing. You're to be studied. And this includes other cultures, right? But it's easier and less hurtful to our to our wanting to not be racist selves to say, well, what I really mean is just animals and, um, and minerals and rocks and things like this. Uh, those are, we, we objectify, but not people. Well, no, we, we objectify people too. Um, we study them. We study each other. And, and it's weird too, the way that we study each other because we only go off our own background We don't actually go off of who the other is. And so I'll give you an example. I live in Hawaii here, and in Hawaii, uh, Christian missionaries came and uh, quote-unquote conquered the culture by making it illegal to speak Hawaiian. 
by making it illegal to dance the hula. To express the culture in any way was illegal. And Hawaiians didn't have a written language, so here come the missionaries again to um, teach them the language. But the missionaries weren't exactly scholars. These were people who knew enough about the Bible. And so uh, they could teach just enough about the Bible. They could create a written language for Hawaiians that was just enough to read the Bible. And we know all of this, right? This is a fact. This is not in contention. And yet when we come along now, anthropologists and scholars and the such, and talk about Hawaiians, uh, we're dealing with that image that the Christian missionaries created about the Hawaiians, not about the actuality of Hawaiians. And you can see this quite clearly in the reformatting of the language as it becomes cool again to be Hawaiian and speak your own language. Well, now the scholars are changing the words. They're putting glottal stops where they don't belong in certain words because some words do have glottal stops in them. Therefore, they all must. And because each syllable has a meaning, except according to real Hawaiians, uh, not every syllable does have a meaning. And no, those words were not pronounced that way originally. That was a Christian translation that of, of Hawaiian words that we're now going back to. So we're not going back to the original Hawaiian. We're going back to uh, trying to decode what were the original translations. This is a misstep, correct? I mean, we all see that now that I've said it out loud. Um, but this is what we do. You know, and uh, when you look at... Um, Books on, like, the Hawaiian creation chant. This is, of course, written uh, by people, white people, long ago. Missionaries or descendants of missionaries. I mean, but we're talking many, many moons ago. And so, once again, it's a translation. It's a Christianized version of a translation Um of things that are not completely explained to the outsiders by the Hawaiians. So there's a lot going on there. There's the self-editing due to one's own, you know, the editor's Christianization. Um, and then there's also the fact that uh, some things, the, the fullness and meaning of certain things are not uh, fully explained. And... An example of even that is uh, a place that I was brought to recently that is uh, called the Star Stones. And these are navigational stones. Um, if you want to learn anything about navigation, if you want to learn anything about travel, this is the place where you would meet. And the stones um, were, at least originally, I'm sure they've fallen down and been put back up. Uh, in fact, I've seen evidence of that. And we'll talk about that in a second. But this, the star stones themselves, I mean, these are rare elongated stones standing on end. It looks like a mini Easter island up on this cliff. And uh, they're aligned with the stars of the day. <laughs> and so if you're far out in your canoe, you can see the star stones and you can know where you are and you can get home and all that. But as I said before, uh, the alignment of the stars was different then, but also... Um, so this is up on the, on a precipice on the edge of a cliff and, uh, some of those stones through earthquakes, most likely, um, have tumbled down 
a little bit. And as we were climbing up, uh, there was a stone somewhere along the, the cliff edge that was standing straight on its end. And it turns out that um, this is just, again, a stone that fell, probably through natural causes. And then somebody unfamiliar with the star stones stood it up where it was, thinking that that's where it belonged, thinking it had just fallen over in place, not tumbled from the precipice a little bit of a ways. So this gets to, again, another just problem with our own, um, not ignorance, but uneducation, you know, not being of the culture, not knowing that um, it's, <laughs> this isn't, that this isn't appropriate, that this had fallen from a ledge and this isn't where this stone was, you know, meant to be. It's not in alignment with anything, but to stand it up on end and just assume that, well, then then you've remade the formation, right? Then you think you're you're doing some good work and maybe you're trying to figure out in your head what the meaning of the placement of the stone is, what it aligned to and all of that. And let's say you're an academic and you come up with uh, a, an answer, but it's a false answer. But it goes into your book, you know, the book of assumptions that becomes the book of law real quick. It becomes common wisdom. Oh, that's that's where these stones were placed on purpose. We just stood them back up. And here's their meaning. And meanwhile, it's meaningless. But getting back to even the, the deeper meanings involved here with the star stones, it's a place where you talk about all navigation. So that includes spirit navigation. That includes, you know, things that we in the West would call astral travel and this sort of thing. Um, anything having to do with travel. But do you think that the anthropologists got that explanation? No. What they got was, oh, this is a place for navigation, and navigation means purely the ocean. But it meant so much more, because these are multidimensional people, and when they speak, they are speaking about topics in multidimensional ways, right? Um, but, of course, you're also not going to tell that to Christians, <laughs> people who have oppressed you. And a lot of Christians nowadays, of course, aren't oppressive. Not everyone is a fundamentalist missionary type. Um, but that still exists here on the island. There are plenty of missions. and I mean, it's actually shocking to me. Uh, and in the world. And so, and if you've been abused by them already, you're not, you know, you're going to hesitate to uh, give up all the information. Um, and on top of that, this information, a lot of information, um, like history, real Hawaiian history, was uh, kept within the families. So each family had their own spin on the story, and um, some of those stories are false. Some have a bit of truth and a bit of false, and then some of them are the real thing. And so whoever is meant to hear the truth will... Uh, through synchronicity or what have you, find the correct re representation, the family who holds the real story. This is how things worked. This is how secrets are kept, right? But do you think the missionaries are going to get that? No. So why is it that now we go back and we look at the missionary work or what we thought of as Hawaiian from even 100 years ago when that's not where... We need to be looking. And now just extrapolate out from there that this is what we do with all these nature cultures. And the fact that we're studying them 
I mean, they're not studying us, <laughs> right? Like they have to live with us. And they seem to understand us because they seem to be more inclusive. Like, again, even in Hawaii, uh, there's room for Jesus in their pantheon of gods and the such. Um, but in Christianity, there's only room for the one God, and that's Jesus. So, you know, this is a problem. Heart cultures are inclusive and brain cultures are exclusive. You see? Your culture is ignorant until proven intelligent. And you can only prove yourself intelligent by being just like us. And this, again, as I said in the episode dealing with science, this is uh, an inheritance in science. This arrogance, this religious arrogance is an inheritance. I mean, it just keeps going on in our culture, whether we consider ourselves rational reductionists or true believers. Because both come from the brain. Both are a means of pretending that what we imagine the world to be is the final answer. And that every time we get the proof we seek that we are wrong, we call that a new discovery and we treat it like uh, we knew it was just like that all along. It's like the, the, the immediate shock is sort of like gives way to conventional wisdom. Yeah, we always knew that. Uh, this is how we cover over not knowing anything at all, folks. <laughs> we cover over that nothingness with everythingness, with somethingness, with the doing, with the doings of discovery in this case. With the doings of saying we're learning. We're learning about those cultures. Now, I think you're, you're mistaking oppressing people and then giving it some time and then going back and looking at what those oppressed people said in the time of the oppressors and what the oppressors wrote about them who seemed to be uh, kinder, gentler oppressors, the ones that would listen, you know, the priests and the such. We say that that's the ancient history and we take that on face value. Uh, never mind that it's still not far enough back. But let's go back to something that I said and then blew over, which is that nature cultures, these kids in these nature cultures don't have imaginary friends. They don't have imaginary gods. They are interacting in a world that is alive. The aliveness of the world. The animals, the insects. These are nations. The rocks. Everything is alive. And so perhaps the fact that we have imaginary friends and then we train ourselves to talk to and listen for a response from the air for directives from God or some higher power, um, you know, maybe we're the schizophrenics in the room. Maybe this is what happens uh, with imagination when it is applied incorrectly through society. Uh, and what I'm saying here is that perhaps imagination or, you know, the type of imagination where you are talking to other beings that are invisible, invisible friends, that sort of thing. Um, maybe that has a proper function and it's not functioning properly in us because we don't apply it at an early age to the natural world. Or if we do, uh, we are taught away from that. We're taught that being an adult is to put away childish things, and those are childish things. But what if they're not childish things? Because 
these cultures, um, when left to their own devices, seem to be doing just fine. It's not as though they grow into adults and then are just babbling, immature, childlike morons, right? <laughs> They're actually very wise, very astute, uh, very intelligent, very cunning. And, oh yeah, they are able to speak with these various non-human nations. Um, so maybe the imagination in that sense, or that ability to speak with other organisms, is only a projection from us uh, when we abuse it, when we don't recognize that to begin with. Like, if you're not teaching your kids to begin with about the interconnectivity and the aliveness of all, uh, then maybe the the ability to understand the world that way gets recontextualized and funneled into imaginary friends, into a projection from ourselves. And so because we're the dominant culture here, we say... Well, that's what everyone does. Everyone is just doing a projection from themselves. And so those native cultures, well, those people are just, uh, that's animism. That's anthropomorphizing things to make them more human and relatable. Well, no, 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 no. Maybe that's what Western kids are doing and uh, <laughs> westernized new age people who are groping to find their natural state Maybe that's what evangelicals are doing when they train themselves to hear God. But that's because we're not relaxing into our own interconnecting nature. And if we were to do that, then this force of imagination may just spread out into the world naturally and open up lines of communication, if you want to call it that with other organisms, with things that we formerly would have thought were inanimate objects like rocks and minerals, with plants. It's funny how many people I, I know who have that, that Western arrogance of, well, we are a modern society, and wouldn't you rather have cars than nothing? Wouldn't you rather have sewage than no sewage? Wouldn't, you know, we've gone to space. Isn't that amazing? But really... Everything that we do is polluting. Everything that we do is geared toward war. So no, these other cultures would not come up with these things. Uh, they would not even live in societies so large that they might need sewage, I don't think. Although I'm not going to argue against sewage because, you know, I am a fan. <laughs> but I'm trying to make the point here uh, as poorly as possible that... Um, that these these technologies that we consider to be advancements and you know we look we look at them as though they are reflecting back at us our amazingness and our ability to grow and transcend ourselves on this earth in some sort of evolutionary way um, they're actually if you were in balance, you would never create these things in the first place. You would be living naturally in nature, right? So actually these things are the product of an imbalance. Of a forward-thinking, linear, logic-only mind. At least that's how we see ourselves. That's, that's how we imagine 
in a science fiction way, uh, who we are and where we're going. And the reality is that's going on uh, with all of the shadow side of it, which is the unhappiness, the abuse, the war mentality, the pollution. Um, The main effect uh, that is global warming or climate change uh, which is the accumulation of a lot of this pollution. Uh, we look at that and we, uh, you know, we want to either ignore it or we want to figure a way around it. But we're like putting our fingers on the on the hole in the dike, right? It's it's not really fixing the leak, uh, and eventually the dam's going to explode because the leak is the mind. the The explosive thing waiting to happen is. This mind of ours, this rational, logical brain self, is a false construct. It's uh, an imbalance. And Jesus may be your co-pilot, but if you're on a kamikaze mission, and you're in the midst of a suicide dive, who cares who's flying the thing? 